Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Ohio-based Persistent Surveillance Systems wants to bring its technology to St. Louis. Last October, CEO Ross McNutt joined us on St. Louis on the Air to explain the system and its origins, which are in war-torn Iraq. We were losing the war in Iraq as we were losing hundreds of soldiers and civilians to roadside bombs. And the idea was that we would be able to take an image of a city, Fallujah, Ramadi, and be able to watch the explosion occur, go back in time to watch who was there at the before the event, follow them from the explosion back to the houses that they went to, and backwards in time to the houses that they came from, in order to provide information that would allow you to figure out who exactly planted those. It's the same sort of thing we do with murders and shootings and other sorts of things, by providing the locations where people came from and went to before and after the murder, you're able to identify and provide information to investigators that will help solve those crimes. Now, CEO Ross McNutt described persistent surveillance systems as, quote, Google Earth with TiVo capability, and it would be free to St. Louis thanks to a benefactor hoping to see the technology deployed in American cities. Now, that proposal is still on the table, and aldermen have urged Mayor Lyda Krusen to open discussions with McNutt's company, even as activists have raised some serious concerns about privacy in, in the surveillance system. But since we spoke to McNutt, there have been some developments. Namely, last April... Baltimore began a six-month pilot program with persistent surveillance systems. And joining us today is a reporter who's done more than just about anyone to cover its implementation in Baltimore. Joanne Cavanaugh-Simpson is a contributor to Baltimore Magazine and also an author, Pulitzer Center 2020 fellow, and a university lecturer. So Joanne Cavanaugh-Simpson, welcome. Hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. You reported that planes have been flying over Baltimore for up to 11 hours a day, capturing these surveillance images. What results have they gotten when it comes to solving crime? Well, the data is um, mixed so far. They, the police department themselves say um, there's not sufficient data to say whether it's effective or not. Um, they did come out with a recent midterm report that looked at some uh, recent closures with arrests of cases. And they did basically understand that there perhaps a slight increase in closures when the AIR, which is basically what they call the Aerial Investigation Research Project, um, is uh, found. And so that would say they compared it, maybe 17% of cases were closed that had that that sort of uh, data, aerial data, compared to 14%. But there's some questions about um, whether it's daytime data versus nighttime, whether it's inside the coverage area or outside the coverage area. So that's all still in process currently. So this has been underway since April. It feels like we would have thought by now we'd have more clear-cut evidence of this has solved this murder or we can point to this person caught red-handed here. They're not making those sort of claims at this point. Any, any sense of what's taking so long um, to get this thing implemented? Well, partly it's a tool. It's a complicated tool. And one thing it seems to offer is that, it's, it, you know, it adds to the toolbox, investigators' mm-hmm. toolbox. So it, it takes a long time for a department, apparently, to get up to speed on the on the um, complex nature of the technology. Um, they have to work with, they're, they're kind of basically integrating their other technologies, including CCTV cameras, um, license plate readers, etc. So I think that's part of why it's taking longer. Also, um, there's just, 
um, it's not, there's just so much crime in the city, it's, it's hard to tell, like for that 17% versus 14%, there's about 19 cases that used a, the data, the aerial data, versus out of 107 versus 124 cases out of 874 cases. So there are many, mm-hmm. many more cases out there that are also getting solved. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're at night, sometimes. So all of that is being sussed out by the police department and some uh, third-party evaluators that are looking at the data. Hmm. So this is not just as simple as, say, using TiVo. It sounds like there's there's manpower involved. People have to learn the ropes of what they've even got there. And then they've got a lot of their normal stuff they're doing on top of trying to learn this system. Is, is that kind of a summary of, of where we're at? Yeah, I think that's accurate. That's what uh, Police Commissioner Harrison had discussed with me. Um, and also, um, it's not necessarily a deterrent so far. Hmm. Um, the homicide rates in Baltimore, which, as you probably know, are very high, um, are just as high as they have been the previous year. And around Labor Day, the weeks around that, there were 46 uh, shootings hmm. of people, and 12 of those died. or That might have included a stabbing in there. But so... That's one of the things that's promoted um, by persistent surveillance systems is is deterrence, and that we're not seeing. Hmm. Now, that's interesting, and that leads right into something I wanted to ask you about. You um, had described this pilot in Baltimore as a, quote, reboot of the secretive 2016 surveillance collaboration between an embattled Bar- Baltimore police department and this private Ohio-based company. Now, this one back in 2016, uh, they started collaborating without residents' knowledge. And when I spoke to CEO Ross McNutt last fall, he said that city officials were the ones who insisted this program begin in secrecy. And when it became public knowledge, it drew some major pushback. And he acknowledged to us that, yeah, the people of Baltimore were upset about this. And so were we, because to be honest with you, we wanted it to be very public. Two-thirds of what we hope to do is deter people from committing crime in the first place. We reduce crime in a number of different ways. One, we help solve otherwise unsolvable crimes. By doing that, we remove the repeat offenders earlier in their criminal careers We want to stop someone after they shoot their first person, not after they shoot their 10th or 11th. Mm -hmm. That saves a lot of people. But more importantly, by solving those crimes, the goal is to deter people from committing crimes in the first place. And there's no way to deter somebody if they don't know that you're there. Mm -hmm. So we want to be very public. We want everyone to know that we're there. And that is CEO Ross McNutt. Um, So this time around, they have been very public. People are on notice that these these cameras are flying. How do people feel about that in Baltimore? Well, first I want to say it's a little bit unclear of who wanted it to be undisclosed back in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there were some communications between the police commissioner then and um, City Hall. Um, No, they weren't actually going forward and, and with Ross McNutt's participation. Um, as far as now, yes, it's been very public, um, and the community, there, there's mixed feelings, I'd say. Um, a number of people don't appreciate the constant surveillance. The plane is in the air 12 hours a day, hmm. um, pretty much every day, um, up to 12 hours a day. There have been some complaints, um, 40 of 60 or 70 complaints have been related to noise, which partly is because these planes are, are fairly large, Cessnas. And that sometimes they fly very low, even though they're supposed to fly at 8,000 feet. Hmm. But I think it's more that it's a consistent reminder of the surveillance. And um, there's been some support. There was a poll back in October uh, done by a local pastor that said that 70% of 500 residents 
supported this, but then there's been some questions about whether that whether that poll was biased or backed by people who um, support the plane uh, program itself. Hmm. Uh, I think the the question is, I think the bottom line with this is that there's a great deal of crime, as you know, violent crime in Baltimore, and there's a great deal of concern over that. So people, both the leaders and the community, um, there are a lot of people that feel rather desperate about finding ways to address this. And that's actually part of the criticism is that that this outside company is coming in to a community that feels like this, so it's desperate to try something, and there have been some concerns about that. Yeah, I think there might be some parallels to St. Louis there. Um, We certainly also have these issues, and there's also a mood from some residents that this this is an act of desperation by the city to even continue this. We actually heard from some of our listeners today. um, Brandon writes on our St. Louis on the Air Facebook page, there are large segments of the population that don't trust law enforcement as it is. Spy planes monitoring everyone at all times is not a way to enhance that trust. There are some major Fourth Amendment issues at play. Enhancing the police state is not going to reduce crime. Investment in communities will. Eric writes on Facebook, plenty of potential, of course, but frightening step furthering data ownership questions and a move towards Big Brother. Um, Joanne, I know there have been some court challenges to this Baltimore program, namely from the ACLU. What are they arguing here? Well, the ACLU um, initially filed a uh, complaint for a preliminary injunction to stop the planes from going up. And their concern is just that, that it, that the constant aerial warrantless, you know, suspicionless mass surveillance violates the First and Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Um, so that's what they've been arguing. And, you know, they, they filed the complaint on behalf of uh, local advocates and community um, you know, community activists, ag- advocates, and civil rights activists. And their concern is just what you've said, that this, first of all, might, you know, chill their their expression of First Amendment. Some have been followed from protests by police in the past. Hmm. They feel like this is one other tool to do that. Or somehow make it more difficult, or they feel less comfortable going out on streets to reach out to people when they know that they are being recorded from above. Hmm. So that's what the ACLU is um, is fighting. And then there was just recently, so they appealed the decision, a judge decided to let the program go forward, and they recently filed appeal, and those oral arguments were heard just about a week ago. And they're, they're also arguing that it still violates this, that, it, that being a constant feature just sort of goes over the line of surveillance, where Whereas the police have said, well, this is public streets, it's not necessarily, you know, you shouldn't have an expectation of privacy in public streets. Um, but I think the ACLU counters, again, that this, this goes too far. Hmm. Uh, so, so you said there were oral arguments last week. Um, do we know yet um, which way the court is ruling or will rule? We don't. I've been following that to see when that comes out. Um, there were three judges. They were they had very conflicting opinions based on their answers so far. I mean, you know, you don't know exactly what the opinion will be. Sure. But um, one of them was quite questioning the program. The other two weren't sure that it was a violation just based on their questions or at least their statements. So that should come out fairly soon, but we don't have a date yet. Okay. And you raised the question in uh, one of your, your pieces for Baltimore Magazine of whether this technology is being used to surveil protesters. Do we have any evidence at this point that the police are using these images in that way? Well, the police say they are not using these images in that way. Um, what I did was look at, there's um, publicly available flight radar data, 
that's based on FAA data. And I look closely at the flight paths over the first uh, half of the program and found that that I don't know if it's a coincidence, but they're over. They were over the protests on those major protest days. Hmm. Now those protests are within or within the area that the surveillance plane. There was one plane at the time, um, mostly uh, cover. But I noticed on the first day when the protests started, the plane seemed to shift from a further western part of that coverage area over to where the protests were. So. You know, the police don't always dictate day-to-day where the plane goes. They just say, these are your coverage areas. So whether the company said, oh, let's go over here, let's shift over here because things are happening, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not clear. So the way we reported was that it's really the point is that it's mass surveillance of anyone that goes down there. I mean, I went down to report on it, and I know that I was – in that coverage area that you could probably you could see where my dot was, you know, going from my car down to where the protest started. And, and after the fact, somebody could use that TiVo function and, and go back and see where you went after that. Yes, pretty much. If I'm within the city limits and the, yes, in the coverage area, yes. Hmm. It is. Boy, it just raises just a host of questions here. Um, We also heard from a listener, Jerry, and he had uh, two questions. He wants to know, how is PSS monetizing the data they're collecting in Baltimore? And aside from local law enforcement, who else has access to the data as it's gathered? And subsequently, you could see in the wrong hands, this data could be be used for all sorts of things. Does Baltimore have any assurances on on who's allowed to see this and, and whether or not it's allowed to be monetized? Yes, that was raised in there. They have a contract. They call it a memo, a memo memorandum of understanding. So they have a contract with PSS, and that is part of the contract is that they will not share their data. Mm. Um, and that, you know, with third parties, so the police have access. They will, the, once they create evidence packets, defense attorneys can get access to that data. Sure. But it's apparently pretty limited. That's part of the, um, what the, uh, Baltimore Police Department described as privacy controls. Um, they, you know, there's questions. Not, not all of this isn't fully transparent because this is this is a private company doing this work. It's being funded by an outside entity, Arnold Ventures. So, you know, trying to do a public information request on all of the data is is not as possible mm-hmm. uh, because it's private. Now, once it goes to the courts, it'll be there. But that's that's still how this all plays out. Still question questionable. And how does you mentioned the police commissioner? How does he feel about this program at this point? Has he has he given an indication of, of his temperature? Well, it's really interesting because he's been rather ambivalent. Um, he resisted at first, uh, especially because the company um, makes pretty clear claims, although there's no evidence of it, that they'll reduce violent crime by up to 20 to 30 percent, mm-hmm. and he was not comfortable with that. Um, so over time, I think there was enough pressure in the community or from other leaders or business leaders to, to try this in a pilot. And even then, even since then, he said he's not sure if it's going to work or not. He has no expectations one way or the other. He wants to let the data speak for itself. So, and that data is being looked at by... Um, Third parties, not, I mean, necessarily NYU, um, University of Baltimore, Rand Corporation, that's also part of that contract, Morgan State University. Um, some of them are being um, funded 
by Arnold Ventures as well, though, the company that's actually funding the pilot program. So I'm sure that, you know, these are all universities and, and such, but I would call them third-party evaluations. Mm-hmm. So this evaluation is still in process. Uh, what's the thing that you're going to be keeping an eye on going forward? Well, I'm going to be looking at both, both sort of the closure rates. I want to look closely at the data that's available from these third companies, whatever third uh, evaluators, whatever I can, you know, ascertain of how deep this goes, um, exactly what PSS is doing. I mean, there's some question about whether uh, they can do real-time operations, whether they're actually having data from all the city surveillance systems uploaded into a software that the company has. I mean, there, there are a lot of questions. And then just how this fits into the whole um, past and present of tech-oriented surveillance. That's what I'm looking at with the Pulitzer Center, sort of this new new technologies and how they're being deployed in, in urban communities. So we're trying to look at, you know, where this all fits in, how effective is it, is it effective or not, and what's the impact on the community. There are a lot of people who feel that, that they, the trust with the police is already a problem and that this just makes it that much worse to feel like they're surveilled all the time. Um, So we're just looking at outcomes and sort of how it unfolds over the next few months. Well, I know we're going to be continuing to keep a close eye on your reporting, and I want to thank you for the good work that you've done on this, and, and also thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.